Good evening and thank you for the invite, Andy. I think this is probably payback for the patients I've sent you over the years. Um, we obviously didn't know it was me that was speaking, otherwise the turnout wouldn't have been quite so good. So I was asked to talk about the rheumatological causes of back pain and I knew what I was going to talk about because I like inflammatory back pain and that's what I was planning. But I thought I'd better check what rheumatological actually meant. So like all good physicians, I turned to Wiki um, and Googled or wicked rheumatological. And what it said, it pertained to rheumatism. So that's a colloquial term referring to any painful disorder of the locomotor system, joints, muscles, connective tissues, soft tissues around the joints and bones. So that kind of basically means the other speakers don't have to bother. I'll just cover the whole lot and if I can get it done in 30 minutes, that'll be fine. But of course, I'm not really going to talk about that because rheumatologists have kind of hived ourselves off now as being inflammologists. So what I'm really going to talk about is inflammatory back pain or ankylosing spondylitis. Except I'm not really going to talk about ankylosing spondylitis either because ankylosing spondylitis is a really good pathological description of the, of the late stages of the spondyloarthritis. It's actually not very useful as a clinical construct for me because by the time they've got bony ankylosis, by the time there's bony fusion, there's actually not that much I can do to help and it's actually my colleagues in the pain service, physiotherapy, etc., that can perhaps do more for them than I can. So we've really stopped talking about ankylosing spondylitis in the early stages of disease and I would say spondyloarthropathy or spondyloarthritis, which if you practice a lot, you'll get your tongue around it eventually. This is the, the kind of overarching concept of spondyloarthritis, and this is um, put forward by ASIS, who are the Assessment of Spondyloarthritis Society. Um, they are a relatively new group. They formed in 2003, and they're really driving forward um, spondyloarthritis in, in the Western world. Um, this diagram can be hacked into depending on what your particular area of interest will be. And it's still got ankylosing spondylitis at the core, but that core gets smaller and smaller and smaller as the years go by. And these bites in from arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease, reactive arthritis, psoriatic disease all get bigger. And the number of people who fall into undifferentiated SPA spondyloarthritis get bigger. Why does it get bigger? Well, largely because if you are of a gastroenterological bent, you can tell people who look after ankylosing spondylitis, that actually about 40% of the patients will have features of inflammatory bowel disease if you do capsule endoscopy. If your interest is skin, you can tell people who look after ankylosing spondylitis that actually, if you really go over people with a fine tooth comb, about 30% of people with spond have undiagnosed psoriasis. So there's a lot of psoriatic disease out there that we don't recognise. I personally suspect there's a large chunk of reactive arthritis or reactive spondyloarthritis we don't recognise largely because the disease course is pretty slow. And will all of us remember the dodgy tummy we had 10 years ago? Maybe not. Another factor is that people might not choose to mention that episode of dysuria they had after some unprotected sex 10, 15 years ago. So we underdiagnose reactive arthritis. So that's the kind of conditions I'm going to talk about. What I'm going to try and briefly do in the time we have is run through a wee bit of background, talk a bit about how we make the diagnosis, because one of the interesting things about spondylitics is they'll turn up in all sorts of places. And certainly Andy sent me someone who turned out to have spond rather than just being mechanical back pain. Talk a bit about what we do with them when we get them, and then we'll say have some time for questions, but we can save them for the end if that's better for this running of the meeting. So ankylosing spondylitis has been around for a very, very long time. It's the most ancient of rheumatic disorders. If you want to be really um, archaeological about it, there's a whole lot of cave bears that have had it. There's prehistoric whales that have had it. Go back in time, Amenhotep II and Ramesses the Great both had evidence of spondylitis if you CT them through their, through their mummified bodies. 
as a clinical condition, it's been recognised for a long time and far longer than something like rheumatoid arthritis. The clinical patterns describe a Rialdo Colombo in Padua in Italy in 1559. The skeletal changes were beautifully described by Bernard Connor in 1691. And the association with inflammatory eye disease has been known since 1818, so nearly 200 years. You see, the chap Benjamin Brodie that described the association between spinal disease and inflammatory eye disease is perhaps most noteworthy for being the guy who um, um, Henry Gray um, dedicated the first edition of Gray's Anatomy. So there you go. He was pretty high th highly thought of in the, in the circles he moved in. The actual naming of the condition took a bit longer, and they say we didn't get a name for this until um, the latter part of the 19th century. And it's been named in different places depending on the, um, the, the, the most kind of enthusiastic person to tag the name onto it. And if you look at old literature, you'll still see people talking about Bertrand's disease, Strumpel's disease, Pierre-Marie disease. But we moved on after that and it became ankylosing spondylitis, only for us to then rub out ankylosing spondylitis and talk about spondyloarthropathy. <coughs> so relatively common condition, and people used to think that spondyloarthritis was rare. We now think it's about as common as rheumatoid disease and say prevalence, point prevalence we call, quote is about 0.5% in Western Europe. It is more common in other populations where the prevalence of HLA-B27 is higher. Eskimos and Inuits have a particularly high prevalence. There's a group of Hanta Indians who live in islands of British Columbia where the prevalence is about 6%. It is exquisitely rare in Japan, so I wouldn't do have much job as a spondylitis doctor in Japan. We've always thought of it being more common in men than women. And if you go to very old texts, you'll see that ankylosing spondylitis is nine times more common in men than women. And over the years, that's come down. We're now kind of arguing between two and three times more common, largely because ladies seem to have a much more attenuated disease process, so they don't have the same, maybe because we don't think about it in ladies, um, but they seem to present more slowly and present with lighter disease at a much older age. So. It may simply be they've got better pain thresholds, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't start any arguments about that. We are getting better at the diagnosis, and the mean age of diagnosis is falling. We're now getting it down to the lower 30s, late 20s, if we're really lucky, um, compared to in the mid-40s when, when people started looking with people like Roger Sturrock back in the 70s. This is a graphical illustration of that. So this is an, a variety of studies looking at the of, prevalence of ankylosing spondylitis, which is one of the spondyloarthropathies, spondyloarthritis as a whole, and rheumatoid in France, States, and Lithuania. So France is a bit unusual. It seems to have a relatively low prevalence of ankylosing spondylitis and spondyloarthropathy. The States seem to be awfully good at diagnosing this. So they quote 1.3% prevalence for, 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 for spondylitis, compared to about 0.64% for rheumatoid. And Lithuania seems to be about average for, for Western Europe, they're kind of 0.6 for SPA and just under 1% for rheumatoid disease. So it does vary across different parts, largely because of our ability to meet the diagnosis and access to MRI effectively now. So that's the background. How do we make the diagnosis? Sometimes it's really, really easy. And I think about a third of the people who walk into my clinic, it's a classical inflammatory back pain. And a young man who may or may not tell me he's a problems with Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis, you may or may not have toes that swell up like sausages, you may or may not have had lower limb oligoarthritis, but they come with a really good story of backs that are stiff and sore in the morning, get better with exercise, better with anti-inflammatories. Sometimes it's made even easier for me, they've attended the inflammatory eye disease clinic, they've had uveitis, they attend the dermatology with psoriasis, they attend gastro with inflammatory bowel, or they've been to the Sandiford. So sometimes my job is really, really easy but sometimes it's not, and say the, the, the kind of easy third 
are easy. The other ones are a bit more tricky to find. And they're the ones that turn up in all sorts of other clinics and they come from the orthopaedic guys, they come from the ESP physios, they come from pain services, they come from everywhere. One of the reasons we've had difficulty with ankylosing spondylitis is that the old-fashioned criteria still apply. So the modified New York criteria are still diagnostic criteria for, for spondylitis. And that's part of the reason we're trying not to use the name. They initially came out in 1962, were modified in 1966, and then have been out since 1982 in their current form. So they are old, but no one's got around to changing them. They represent advanced disease. So they're diagnosing the advanced form of this condition. They're not diagnosing early inflammatory arthritis. They're diagnosing structurally damaged disease. And the criteria reflect that. I mean, some of them we wouldn't argue with. The low back pain for more than three months remains in the current criteria for, for spondylarthritis diagnosis. That back pain should be inflammatory in nature and that it's better with exercise and does not get better with rest. Unfortunately for the New York criteria, they want you to have limited range of movement. They want your back not to move very well. They want your chest not to move very well. And again, that represents advanced disease and not what I really want to see turning up as a new patient in my clinic. The bit that really makes it tough is to make a, a New York criteria diagnosis, you need to have x-ray changes. And these x-ray changes need to be quite advanced, either bilateral grade two or unilateral grade three or four sacroiliitis. And that takes time. And that's why we've had a problem with spondylitis because we've been tardy in our diagnosis. Um, so nice, well-preserved SI joints, good joint space, no particular sclerosis or anything too weird or wonderful around and about it. These are nice, healthy joints. However, this is a diagnosis or a, a nice set of radiographs or demonstration because this person who looks like they've got plumb normal SI joints in plain x-ray had really hot SI joints in the MRI scan. So just those x-rays aren't that useful. They can be later on in disease and this is somebody with um, grade one sacroiliitis on the left. So slightly suspicious changes begin to get a bit of fluffiness around the joint space, not really any loss of joint space. On the right, this is definite changes. You're beginning to see fluffiness, possible erosions. Still got, got a joint space so they've not lost it. Moving on to grade three sacroiliitis, is another grade two on the, on the right, grade three on the left. Begin to lose joint space. The joint's disappearing into a kind of inflammatory mulch in that part. Grade four is when you've got bilateral ankylosis, so you've lost your SI joints, so they've disappeared. You, can't, you can see where they've been, but there's no joint space there. This person's spine's actually relatively well-preserved. They don't have too much in the way of syndesmophyte at this stage. But this is what happens if you x-ray the lumbar spine. You start to see the shiny corners appearing. On MRI, these light up beautifully as Romanus lesions. Moves on. But five years later, begin to get syndesmophytes coming. So not quite bridging at this point, but certainly lipping out and not going to move quite as well by the time your spine looks like that. And by the time you get to this stage, this is advanced spondylitis. So they've got the kind of bamboo spine, they've got bridging syndesmophyte, and that back won't move very well at all. At that stage, I can do very little to help. So we don't really want to get people at that stage. What we want to do is get people when they've got early disease. And this is what ASAS have driven forward since about 2003. And this is their classification criteria from 2009, trying to get people in, get them onto therapy at a stage when they can still be hopefully rescued from getting bony fusion and, and ending up stuck for life. So what they require is either sacroiliitis and imaging, and that can be plain x-ray or MRI, and one, feature of spondyloarthritis, one associated feature of spondyloarthritis, or being HLA-B27 positive and a couple of spondyloarthritis features. And the SPA features are inflammatory back pain, peripheral arthritis, enthesitis, uveitis, dactylitis, psoriasis. A good response to anti-inflammatories, really important for inflammatory back disease. If they get hugely better, there's a chance it's inflammatory. We need to see them. Um, family history of spondyloarthritis counts. HLB27 counts. Elevated CRP is the weakest marker here. An elevated CRP 
is not that helpful in a diagnosis of inflammatory spinal disease and a normal CRP should not reassure you they don't have it. Lots of SPA patients sit with CRPs in the normal range with disease that's just grumbling away and grumbling away. And I can explain to you why if we've got time. This is what we would like to see in an MRI or don't like to see in an MRI. Lovely, beautiful bone edema on star sequence. This is a nice, hot sacroiliitis. So this is something I can make better and something I would quite like to see at clinic because I can, I can help it. There is, however, a problem in that at the moment we still don't know enough about sacroiliitis. There are a lot of people out there who get transient sacroiliitis and do not go on to get full-blown persisting inflammatory back disease. There's a cohort of ladies who get quite impressive sacroiliitis after pregnancy um, and that can be quite tricky because some of them are B27 positive and we don't know whether they're spondylitis or it's just the mechanical changes after pregnancy. So whilst it's a very helpful test and I'm, I'm sure I'm the, the bane of radiologist's life because I request an awful lot of MRIs, <coughs> on its own it's not diagnostic. So it's helpful but not diagnostic on its own. So what about genetics? I've already mentioned HLA-B27. Ankylosing spondylitis was one of the first identified HLA-associated diseases and it remains one of the most strong HLA-associated genetic diseases. HLA-B27 is out there. Pre population prevalence in this part of the world about 8%. As we said, population for prevalence for spondylarthritis between 0.5 and 1%. So even if you're B27 positive, that does not mean you're going to get spondylitis. It just means you're at a greater risk. The prevalence is lower in other populations and Asian populations and Afro-Caribbean populations B27 is of less relevance in spondyloarthritis. But in a Caucasian population in this part of the world, HCB27 is a really pretty good association. So that's great. What does B27 do? Um, we don't know. We've been looking at it for about 40 odd years and we still don't know. Um, it's not a single marker. It's not a single gene disorder. And we think it's probably five or six genes that kind of huddle together around B27. We know there's about 25 alleles, about 23 proteins, but we don't know what they do. Um, lots of people have lots of ideas, talk about molecular mimicry, talk about shared epitopes with Klebsiella, but the crunch is, because there's lots of theories, it's because we don't actually know. This is the kind of most up-to-date theory, which is, the, there was one of three choices, um, that either HLA-B27, when you trigger it with a certain type of antigen, you start to get problems with beta-2 beta microglobulin binding, you get a funny trimolecular complex that does funny things to your CD8 positive, CD positive T cells. Or when you get antigen, it forms a funny clump which presents badly to a range of different inflammatory cells, NK cells, T cells and B cells. Or the one that seems to be coming to the fore and possibly the strongest argument for this is that if you've got the wrong version of B27 and you get a certain antigen exposed to you, you don't make the proteins properly. So you get these unfolded proteins getting spewed out. The T cells don't really know what to do with that. They get an unfolded protein response and the whole thing goes wonky. That seems to be most likely for a group of patients with spondylitis, but perhaps not all of them. This is what happens when you have the Human Genome Project. People trawl your genome, and this is the number of genes that are currently thought to be associated with ankylosing spondylitis. The useful thing is that this great big blue chunk, as in all of that bit, so 75 odd percent, is HLA-B27. All these other bits make up that other part, so the 15-20% that remains. Now, this is different for people who are HLA-B27 negative, but this is the ones we're looking at in those who are B27 positive. So that's all good and well. Does it help to test people for HLA-B27? Um, probably. For early disease, it's useful, and it does. It changes the batting odds, so it changes you know, their risk profile, it changes the likelihood ratio of them having spondylitis, and that's really what this comes down to. 
What I try and do is stratify how likely these people are to go on to develop persisting inflammatory back disease and thus how how the risk benefit would fall for me poisoning with some fairly heavy duty medicines. So it is useful. If you've established the disease, it doesn't matter. So if you've had convincing uveitis or if you've got actual changes of spondylitis on your imaging, I don't need to know your B27 status, it's likely to be positive. The only caveat to that would be if you want to know what your children's risk would be um, or if you've got siblings and you want to have an idea what their risk would be because your B27 status will help guide what your sibling risk um, and what your offspring risk would be. So that's things that we can use. Is there a way for us to diagnose this a bit earlier? And the answer is thankfully yes, and that's why we're getting the age down. So we've now got these new inflammatory back pain criteria. So this is different from what the old-fashioned New York criteria were. We still look for morning stiffness of about 30 minutes duration. We still look for improvement, no improvement with rest. The improvement with the exercise has kind of drifted off a wee bit because what people mean by exercise is felt difficult to actually nail down. The bits that have improved the sensitivity of these questions are awakening in the second half of the night due to back pain and alternating buttock pain. And actually, these are the bits that actually add a fair whack, probably about well, a likelihood ratio of about nine, um, to the diagnosis. So not so much whether you're stiff in the morning, but whether you get pain that wakens you in the second half of the night and whether you get alternating buttock pain. What we try and do is, if you meet the, inflammatory or the criteria for inflammatory back pain, so three out of four of those, and you're B27 positive, or you're MRI positive, you're really pretty likely to have spondyloarthritis and you're need to see me and you need to talk about poisons. This is the German group, um, Martin Rudvallet, who's based at the Charity Hospital in Berlin, has spent an awful lot of time mathematically modelling spondylitis. Um, and this is actually clinically, I think, quite useful because what you start with is if someone is aged under 45 and has a three-month history of back pain, the, in Europe, it's felt there's about a 1 in 20 chance of them having inflammatory back pain. If they then add something like the positive questions for the inflammatory back pain, as in alternating buttock pain, pain waking from sleep, that goes up by another three odd, uh, another three odd fold. If they've had enthesitis, it goes up by another three odd fold. If they've had dactylitis, it goes up by about four and a half fold. Good response to anti-inflammatory bumps you up about five fold. B27, about nine fold. But then you get onto the ones that just make the diagnosis. So sacroiitis plus an inflammatory back history on MRI or an X-ray will nail it for you. So it is useful because you can put the sum of the parts in and it's not always, not everyone will go through an MRI, not everyone um, you will want to take an anti-inflammatory, not everyone can take an anti-inflammatory. So there's ways you can kind of get the numbers to add up and improve your likelihood ratio. And again, this is ACC's idea of how we should screen and how we should try and work out who needs to come and see a rheumatologist. What they start off with is, is chronic back pain. So back pain for three months or more, onset before the age of 45. And they say if you've got inflammatory features, so those questions about alternating buttock pain, pain waking from sleep, then basically there's about a one in five chance you've got it, so you need to come and see a rheumatologist. If you're coming from secondary care and they've run you through an MRI scan and they've found sacroiitis, you probably need to see a rheumatologist to work out what to do about it. If you're B27 and you've got inflammatory back pain, you probably need to see a rheumatologist. So these are the kind of screening out questions for our colleagues in primary care. So that's fine. I've got the patient. What do I do with them now? Anti-inflammatories remain probably the most useful treatments I have. Now, anti-inflammatories have had a fairly rough time with all the cardiovascular risk and all the other different bits and pieces. But the bottom line is, for inflammatory back pain, they are extremely helpful medicines. Phenylbutazone, which I suspect many people in the audience are too young to remember, was a fantastic drug for, for AS. Fairly toxic and it gave you aplastic anemia. But apart from that, it was really good. 
So, but it was fascinating. People knew the risk, but would still take it because it actually made more of a difference to them than anything else we could chuck at them. And in fairness, the same was true for 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 for, for rofecoxib when we had that. And you know, many of my spondylitics really missed rofecoxib when it was withdrawn. We've got good data that, as well as helping the symptoms, that continuous anti-inflammatories actually slow the progression of spondylitis. Now that makes sense. We know that the various prostaglandins will have a role in bone healing and bone 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 union after fractures, it makes perfect sense it will have the same effect on, bo on bony union occurring in your spine. So we a bit of data just to support that. So patients with a good response to anti-inflammatory, basically about 75-80% of the AS patients will have a good response to anti-inflammatory versus 15-20% of mechanical back pain patients. If you use a real good potent anti-inflammatory like a toracoxib, again 70% of response in spondylitics compared to placebo where they got about 25%. Good placebo response, um, but Arcoxia was a pretty good drug. This is the bit about progression. When they say continuous NSAIDs versus on-demand uh, on NSAID, we are encouraged not to prescribe continuous NSAIDs. We're told it's bad for the cardiovascular system. This is true. However, it does slow the rate of bony union, the progression on, on radiographs in patients with spondylitis. Disease-modifying drugs, the standard poisons of rheumatologists, great for peripheral arthritis, useless for spinal disease. So at the moment, None of our conventional DMARs are any use for axial disease. There was a suggestion that sulfasalazine might make you feel better, but not actually make your outcome any better. Methotrexate makes you feel worse. Lothlunomide doesn't work for axial disease. Gold doesn't work for axial disease, um, but does work for peripheral joints. So onto the medicines that work, and these are the ones that start to make me very expensive. Um, Anti-TNF has revolutionised our ability to manage um, spondyl arthropathy. First out was a, it infliximab, a um, chimeric murine monoclonal antibody, then a tanercept, it's a fusion protein. We've got a range of other monoclonal anti-TNFs with adalimumab, golimumab and sertilizumab. We've got one new biologic that's pretty likely to be approved for spondylitis fairly soon. Ustakinumab is an IL-12, IL-23 monoclonal antibody. And the bottom line is these drugs are fantastic. They make people who've been very stiff, very sore, unresponsive to anti-inflammatory feel much better. Basically, the level of response we get is beyond anything we've expected before with anti-inflammatory disease-modifying drugs, with about 40-odd percent of patients getting an ACES-40 response. That's a 40% improvement in their symptoms, and that's, by spondylitic standards, extremely good. The other thing is it makes the pictures look really pretty. So the inflammation, so we've got some nice inflammatory change in the spine here. Lovely bits before you get any anti-TNF. 12 weeks after your anti-TNF, these bits have melted away. So in star sequence, the amount of inflammation has vanished. There's still some changes that hasn't fully healed, but 12 weeks down the line, you've melted the inflammation. The patient feels hugely better, the inflammatory markers feel hugely better. So this is the kind of current thinking about how we should look after our patients. Um, ed education, exercise, physiotherapy, rehab input, Support groups, the, there's a really good um, NAS, the National Ankylosing Spondylitis Society, are really helpful. All run all the way through, no matter whether you're first presentation or late stage disease. Anti-inflammatories remain important throughout. If you've got peripheral disease, sulfasalazine may have a role. Other disease-modifying drugs may have a role. Injecting steroids has a role. But across the board, TNF blockers are helpful. And the eustachinumab will come onto that as well. Analgesics are important throughout. Surgery. Surgery's in the ULAR guidelines, but genuinely the number of spondylitics that get surgery for their back is vanishingly small. Um, but it remains an option if you do funny things to it. So that's great. Have we fixed it? Am I going to stop sending patients with um, advanced spondylitis to our colleagues in the pain service saying, I can't do anything more to help them, please please help? Um, no. 
sadly, anti-TNF is really good for treating the inflammation. It's really good for making the inflammatory change on your, on your MRI disappear, but it doesn't seem to stop bony progression in your spine. So this is something that's just come out in the last few years, and we're getting slightly befuzzled as to why that happens, but we are very clear that it does happen. This is just data supporting that, that neither entanercept, infliximab, or adalumumab make a significant difference to radiographic progression um, over a two-year period. And two years is a reasonable length of time to start seeing it. We'd certainly see changes in, in RA or psoriatic, peripheral psoriatic arthritis in that time. Why does that happen? Well, we think the problem is that when you kick in inflammation, you actually kick in two mechanisms. One is the inflammatory one, which we're very good at settling. The second one is this bone um, release, so a bone morphogenic peptide, wingless, and all these other things, which actually will, op once they've been started, operate independently of the inflammation. So you make the inflammation disappear, but this bit, the new bone formation and ankylosis continues. And in fairness, we've got, we've got other clinical conditions that mirror that. There's um, DISH, there's Forestia's disease. So there are other conditions where you get the bony proliferation without the inflammation. So we think what we've actually achieved is turning spondylitics from having inflammatory disease of their spine with bony proliferation to just having bony proliferation. Can we do anything about it? Well, the answer is yes. We're looking at new targets. Um, the bony proliferation seems to be driven by IL-22, IL-17. People are unsurprisingly looking at, at blockers of that, and they are not far out from being in the clinical arena. There's another theory, um, and the drug companies are really, really keen on this one, that is if you get in really, really, really early with the anti-TNF, you'll be able to stop the process before it switches into this, this, the, the, the bony proliferation one. So the idea being that six weeks after your diagnosis, you're on an anti-TNF. Um, that, the, the, the science of it makes sense. The problem is that these drugs are hugely expensive and come with significant risk. And if you were going to get better with an anti-inflammatory, you're safer on an anti-inflammatory rather than being on an anti-TNF. But basically, we think if you get in very early, you will prevent the, the bony proliferation happening. So does it matter? What happens to patients with spondylitis? Is it worth me chucking £15,000 a year at drug therapy at them? The answer is yes, because if we don't, and this is historical data, they get worse over time. And this is actually looking at structural damage or progression of structural damage over time. And unsurprisingly, most patients start with relatively mild disease, but over time, they drift more towards severe disease and they get worse and worse and worse. In fairness, this is going out to 55 years of disease duration. So it's not something that happens instantly, it's not something that happens quickly, but if we do nothing, people will progress and they'll end up with spines that get stiffer and they suffer as a result. The other interesting parallel from this, and I thought since I was at a pain meeting, I better do something about pain at the end of this, is that although I said ladies seem to be more stoical in their approach to spondylitis and present with later disease, the interesting thing is that men over time seem to find their pain burns out a bit. So although their disease progresses, the amount of pain they report from the disease seems to get less. And that doesn't happen in ladies. They tend to find that those who experience severe pain get more severe pain as time goes by. Interestingly, there's a cohort who start off with severe pain despite having very early disease duration, and that seems to continue, and that's the same in both men and women. So I'm aware that time is marching on and I'm running out of time. So if I was going to kind of bring my bit to a close, what it says, there is a lot of spondylarthritis out there. People think it's uncommon. It's actually more common than rheumatoid. The sad thing is if you don't look, we don't find it. The conventional therapies that we have are quite good for peripheral symptoms, so standard disease-modifying drugs work for that, but do not work for axial disease. Anti-inflammatories help, but they come with their own risk problems. Biologics can be stunningly effective for helping the symptoms, but possibly don't change the outcome. 
we still need to get our heads around how we balance the risks of therapy with the cost implications, with the long-term safety issues, and with the fact that they don't actually stop the disease getting worse over time. I'm obliged, since I've pilfered a lot of slides from ACES, to finish with their mnemonic. This is something they're very keen to have out there, and it's the eye pain idea that they're, when you're thinking about spondylitis patients, you should think about insidious onset of their pain, pain at night, age under 40, improvement with exercise, and no improvement with rest. So this in the Apple era where everything has to be an eye, this, so this is an eye pain. And for anyone who wants any more information, the ACES group are fantastic. They have a huge amount of information on their website, um, lots of slides you can download freely. Um, so please, if you're interested, have a look. <laughs>